invite you to turn to Luke chapter 10 and we'll read the scripture that we've already heard through the children's time and also through the hymns that we've sung this morning. We are looking at some of the biblical roads. So we've already been on the Gaza road and we've met Philip the evangelist and the Ethiopian official. Last week we were on the Macedonian road and we met Saul and learned about his conversion, and we even took a detour over to Straight Street to see about Ananias' conversion. And this morning, we are on the Jericho Road. So as I read the text, allow me to kind of fill in some additional bits of information as we learn about some of these characters on the Jericho Road. Chapter 10 of Luke, verse 25, on one occasion... An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, keep in mind, this is a test. Okay? This is a test. What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? And he answered, and now this expert in the law is putting together two passages of Hebrew scripture. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. That comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and then from Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, that journey from Jerusalem down to Jericho is about a 15-mile journey, and it is a descent of about 3,600 feet. And when we were in uh, Israel, in the Holy Land, about two-plus years ago, we came by Jericho, and we went up 3,600 feet, and back then it was a windy, narrow, curvy, dirt road, and it was a road where robbers were known to go after unsuspecting victims, and we know here that a man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, so he's going by himself. Surely he knows something about the reputation of the road. So we know one of two things about this man. Either he's reckless or he's stupid because he knows the reputation of the road. Why is he going by himself? It, it doesn't make any sense. Well, a man's going down from Jerusalem to Jer Jericho when he fell, sure enough, into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, there were about 20,000 priests during the time of Jesus in 24 different divisions. So each one of the priests, being in 24 divisions, would serve in the temple in Jerusalem twice a year, one week here and another week there, okay? So he is going up to do his temple service. And we think he's a bad guy, right? Because he doesn't stop. 
But really, he's a man of great obligation and responsibility and loyalty because he sees this man on the side of the road and he doesn't know if he's dead or not. And Numbers chapter 19 tells us that if a priest touches a dead body, he is ceremoniously unclean and cannot serve in the temple for one week, seven days. So this priest knows that he has an obligation that he has to meet in the temple. If he goes by and checks on the man, and in fact he's dead, then he's unclean. He can't do his service. So he can't be in two places at the same time, right? He can't check out this guy and still be in the temple and be clean. He can't take any chances. That's why he passes by. All right, verse 32, so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. Now, a Levite's a temple assistant. Just like the priest, he's descended from the tribe of Levi. He's a descendant of Aaron, and he knows the reputation of the road. He knows that robbers often will have someone to lie down as if they're wounded and you go over and check on that person, and then the other robbers come out behind the rocks or some other hidden place, and they attack you. So he knows the reputation of the road. He's not going to stop. Would you stop if you thought you were going to put, it, put yourself or your family in danger? So he keeps moving on. But verse 33 we meet a Samaritan. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, Samaritans live up in the north, and they are half-breed Jews. They intermingled and intermarried with other foreigners, so they're not even allowed to go to the temple in Jerusalem to worship. Jews hate Samaritans, and Samaritans hate Jews. It's a mutual hatred and dislike and distrust. And yet, here's a Samaritan who stops and helps a Jewish man. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you have. Now, which of these three, Jesus is asking this expert in the Jewish law, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He couldn't even utter the name Samaritan. Isn't that interesting? He couldn't say why it was the Samaritan, not the priest, not the Levite who had compassion and mercy. It was the Samaritan. He couldn't even utter the man's name. Such is the hatred of the Jews for these people. The one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, a number of years ago, there were two students at Ripon College in Ripon, Wisconsin. And using a hidden camera and a 
hidden microphone, they decided to experiment to see how closely people followed the teachings of Jesus in his parables. They did it in a, this small community of Ripon, Wisconsin. It's a community of about 7,500 people and about 14 churches. The students did three experiments for their senior seminar thesis project. And of those three experiments, two of the experiments related and focused on the parable that we've just read this morning, the parable of the Good Samaritan. First of all, they posed a fellow student as a low-key beggar outside of the church on a Sunday morning. And the second experiment was that they had a student who laid face down, lied face down on the ground between campus and a local bar, pretending to be unconscious on a bitterly cold night. When that student laid on the ground in the cold, several professed Christians walked by the collapsed man without checking on him. Two girls walked to the other side of the street, both of them members of the Christian Campus Fellowship. Two student medical emergency technicians did stop by to check on the young man lying face down on the ground. The most compassionate of those who stopped that night to check on this young man was a group of drunken students. They were the ones who stopped by to see how he was doing the most. Then on a windy Sunday morning, only half of the people that were coming into the church there at Emmanuel United Methodist Church, said hello to a young, meek-looking uh, gentleman gripping a sign that said, just laid off, looking for some help. Only two people at Emmanuel United Methodist Church asked the young man to come inside that morning, and a few others alerted the pastor about the young man's presence outside, and the pastor already knew about the experiment. One of the students, of the two students who were, who were doing this senior project, said, what inspired this idea was if Jesus were here today, would he still want to tell these same parables? Would they be necessary? Or would he be content and happy walking around Ripon? Ripon is a community that prides itself on a Christian background and yet people still struggle to apply Jesus' teachings to their everyday lives. So what do you think? If Jesus were to show up in Greenville this morning, would he still need to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan? If Jesus were parked on one of the pews in our sanctuary here at Oakbot this morning, would he need to come up and interrupt my sermon and tell this parable in a new and fresh light to us today, helping us to understand who our neighbor is, helping us to redefine who a neighbor is? Now, you know, often it really isn't that difficult, is it, to tell the who and the what and the when and the where and the how of who our neighbor is as we move down our own Jericho roads. You know, Neighbors call us on the phone or they stop by the house and they say, hey, can I borrow an egg? I'm doing some cooking. It'll save me a trip to the grocery store. 
Neighbors will call or they'll stop by and they'll tell you, we're going to be away for a few days or a week or so on vacation. Will you watch our house for us? Will you pick up the mail? A neighbor calls you and they've got a spouse, a husband or a wife who's just had surgery or has been in the hospital and they call you and they say, could you come over and watch our small children just for a few hours so I can go to the hospital and check on my husband or on my wife? Those are the easy kind of calls, aren't they? You know, I was on call the weekend of Hurricane Matthew this past fall. So Hurricane Matthew came in on Saturday, and, you know, we got up on Sunday, decided that we could have church, and uh, got here, and we had some folks in the hospital that I would not been able to see that weekend. So after the eMERGE service was over with at noon, by the time I did everything I needed to do, it was, I don't know, quarter till one, ten till one, and I got in the car and I drove over to Vidant Medical Center to see the families or the people that were in the hospital. And by the time I saw all of the folks, walked back out to the parking lot, got in the car, got home, it was probably 2.15, 2.20, somewhere in that neighborhood that Sunday afternoon. So I hadn't had anything to eat, I was still in my suit, so I changed out of my suit and got something to eat, and and like you, I looked out at my yard, and it was a mess. There were limbs, there were sticks, there was pine cones and pine straw in the yard, and, you know, by this time, it was getting close to 3 o'clock, and I said, well, I better get outside and do a little cleanup work, and I looked out my back window, and I saw two people who were in my backyard, and I could tell they were picking up limbs and sticks and all sorts of things, and I thought... Who in the world is out in the backyard picking up this stuff? And I went out in the garage and got my shoes on and went outside. And lo and behold, there was David and Jimmy Hughes. Out in my backyard picking up sticks and limbs and raking pine. I mean, they brought the whole smoke, uh, rakes and all sorts of things. And, And Jimmy and I were talking on the way over to the hospital. That day, because we were going to be bringing in the North Carolina Baptist men to set, it, set up a feeding unit, and I was just saying, hey, I'm heading to the hospital, and I got some folks to see. And she had compassion on her poor pastor, thinking about how in the world is he going to get his yard cleaned up. And somehow she twisted David's arm to bring him with her, and she was giving her, him orders right and left, i got to tell you, in my backyard. But, Jimmy, I'll never forget the kindness that you and David showed Leslie and me. That's being a friend. That's being a neighbor. That, that, you know, we, we do that all the time. It's really crystal clear who my neighbor is and who I'm willing to help. There, there, there's just no lack of clarity. But sometimes, as you and I know, it's hard to make the call. It's hard to make the call of who our neighbor is, especially if it's someone that we don't know. It's really hard to have that compassion. It's hard to have that caring concern and mercy. Because you see, that Jericho Road is dangerous. And it's got known bandits who will put out decoys sometimes. And those decoys may draw me over to some other people who are coming after me to do me harm. 
And besides, I got a worship service I got to get to in the temple, and I can't be at two places at the same time. I better pass on by on the other side. Or, you know, I'm stopping for gas at the service station, and I'm on my way to a meeting or I'm on my way to a conference and I'm running late as it is and the guy has got a broken down car because of his battery and yes I've got jumper cables in my car but I'm by myself and I don't know him and I don't know what kind of trouble he might bring my way maybe I ought to pass by on the other side what are the, what's the criteria that we need to use to determine if God might be calling us to be a neighbor to someone that we don't know? So I want to throw out to you this morning some guiding principles, some tips, some hints that might guide you in such a way that you would know that God could be tapping you on the shoulder saying, yes, that's your neighbor lying in the ditch on the side of the Jericho Road. Here's principle number one. If a person has a need that's going to inconvenience you, it's probably God tapping you on the shoulder and it's probably the right choice. Lots of times when God is calling us out to do something, it's an inconvenience. It's an inconvenience. My guess is that this Samaritan man had a couple of other agenda items on his calendar and on his schedule that day. He had places to be and he had things to do. And often it's that moment of inconvenience where you've got to put yourself out, where you've got to go the extra mile, where you've got to switch up your schedule and do something that pulls and tugs you outside of your comfort zone, if it's an inconvenience, it may well be God tapping you on the shoulder and saying, that's your neighbor. That's your neighbor. Help him or her. Guideline number two. If you don't know the person and you have some built-in prejudice to that kind of person, it may well be God tapping you on the shoulder saying, that's your neighbor. Now let's just be honest for a moment. Every one of us in this room has got some kind of built-in prejudice or bias. It may be a bias or a prejudice against someone because of how he or she looks, their ethnic or racial background, it can be a prejudice based on religion or faith. It can be a prejudice based on socioeconomic condition. It can be a prejudice based on education or the lack thereof. One of the things we haven't talked about yet this morning is that when this Jewish teacher of the law, this expert of the law, was saying to Jesus, the law says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know how Jews define their neighbor? It was a fellow Jew. And that was it. So that's why this parable shocked all of the listeners 
of Jesus' day when the priest passed by and the Levite passed by and it's a hated Samaritan. You just can't imagine the depth of the hatred and the dislike and the distrust between Jews and Samaritans. I don't understand why this Samaritan man stopped by. I don't understand why he took time to help another Jewish man, a man that he knew despised him, but he did. So what I'm going to tell you this morning is that if you get into a situation where you're having the opportunity to be a neighbor to someone and it is an individual that you have some form in some shape, form, or fashion of a bias or prejudice, it might just be God tapping you on the shoulder and saying, that's your neighbor. You need to help him. And the last guiding principle I would throw out to you this morning is that if someone is in need, and there is a motivation there to help someone out of compassion because you have seen the need up close, it's probably the right decision. It's probably God tapping you on the shoulder. You see, in this story, the Samaritan has to go to where the man is. He has to see, he has to hear, and then... He has compassion. Most of us are in the same boat. Most of us have to go somewhere to see where people are. We have to see and we have to hear their circumstances and their situations before we can have some compassion. And that's the value of mission trips. That's the value of things like Operation Inasmuch. That's the value of volunteering through some of the activities and ministries of our Oakmont Community Center when you tutor a kid or work in the medical clinic or you're part of the homeless ministry on Tuesday night. You go and you see and you hear and you experience up close and that kicks up your compassion. So you see, if you don't go, and if you don't listen, and if you don't see up close, there's a really good chance that your heart will stay hardened and compassion will be scarce. The Christian Century editor and pastor Peter Marty says that he has a postcard and is taped to his office bookshelf and it has a poem that's uh, attributed to the 18th century British writer William Blake. And this is how the poem goes in part. I sought my soul, but my soul I could not see. I sought my God, but my God eluded me. I sought my neighbor, and I found all three. You know, God designed us. And he built us to be a neighbor. To be a neighbor to people, to love them as much as we love ourselves, and to demonstrate love for neighbor through our action. To demonstrate our love, our professed love for our God through our actions. So this morning, I'm just wondering, who is it that God in the last few days or maybe even today, or maybe even tomorrow, 
has or will put in your path? Who's the individual that you would never think about reaching out to and having just a few moments of time with that person to meet some need, just to your presence would make all the difference in the world. We're going to sing the hymn this morning, the servant song, and the words will be on the screen. They're not in your, in your hymnal. And as we sing that hymn this morning, I want you to be prayerful. I want your radar screens to be up and running. And I want you to be thinking about who it is that God may be calling you to be that neighbor to. And as we sing our hymn this morning, if there's, if there's anyone here who's never made that first-time decision to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, or if we have someone here who's been through our Oakmont 101 class, in fact, we've got an Oakmont 101 class, our membership class going on right now as we speak. But if you've been through that class and God is leading you to become a part of the Oakmont Church family, I hope you'll come and share that decision with me. We have our prayer stations available in the back this morning. If you'd like to go and write a prayer request, write a prayer. Pray with one of our ministers. We invite you to do so. So as the Holy Spirit speaks to you, let's stand together and let's sing our hymn.